Hey everybody, this is Raymond. Uh, I just wanted to drop a little disclaimer up front to let you know that we had some technical difficulties with this episode. We pulled it together pretty quickly and we're very lucky that Amanda could join us, but she didn't have her regular recording set up on such short notice, so her mic gets a little choppy at times. We still think it's a great conversation that's well worth the listen, especially during the spooky season, and we appreciate all your patience and support. That said, enjoy the show and have a happy Halloween. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Talking to Tan. I'm your co-host, Raymond Creamer, and with me as always, the great Michael Burns. Oh, well, welcome to be back. This has been so much fun, and I'm glad everyone stuck with us throughout the series. Yeah, yeah. And we're also joined today by a very special guest, returning champion from last week's Titanalyze This trivia episode, Amanda Shirker. Honestly, so excited for the 20th episode of this delightful series. Yeah, Who so... It, I mean, it, we've come such a long way, and uh, long-time listeners know we, we've been talking to Tan every week for, like Amanda said, 20 weeks now, and I feel like our conversations about the movie have changed pretty substantially ever since it came out, and we were all actually able to see it, so to catch up our listeners uh, who may not have been able to make it to the theater quite yet, Michael's going to start us off with a little recap of the film. Michael, what do you got? Absolutely. So for anyone who has not seen this film yet, and of course, we recommend that you get out, you find it, you see it if you can. Okay, so Titan, it's a movie about what happens when you fuck a car, but it's also about so much more. Um, The movie starts with a young woman in France named Alexia. After throwing a little fit in the car, her dad gets in a car accident, her head gets cracked open like a cantaloupe, and we see her get a titanium plate put into her head. Fast forward, as an adult, she's an exotic dancer working at car shows, and she doesn't doesn't just work with the cars, she works on the cars, i.e. she has sex with a car within the first 10 minutes of the film. Along with having sex with a car in the first 10 minutes, she also does some murder. Now, two things happen. A. She does so much murder that the police get uh, sort of get onto her trail. She has to go on the lam. Two, she had unprotected sex with the car. She didn't use a car condom, which is a real thing. Google it. I swear to God. Um, So she is both on the lam and pregnant with a car baby. She then impersonates a missing boy um, who's been gone for 10 years, goes to the police and ends up going to live with the missing boy's father. During this time, she ingrains herself in the world of a bunch of masculine French firefighters, all while trying to hide her identity, which means binding her breast and her pregnant stomach as her stomach continues to rip and oil leaks from her nipples. All along, we see that her new adopted father, Vincent, is struggling with growing old, shooting uh, steroids into his buttocks most nights to try to keep his virile masculinity. It ends up becoming a story about these two people finding love in each other. Um, we see a lot of blurred identity lines and, you know, spoiler alert right here. If you haven't seen the movie, stop. But um, she has she has she gives birth to a car baby at the end. So that's that's the main recap. But I think an important thing about this movie is it's more of and we can maybe talk about this later, more of like a vibe than it is a plot. Um, I, I don't think. This I don't think what makes the movie good um, is necessarily the the machinations of story, but sort of the explorations of of character. But I'm jumping ahead, so let's start with this. I mean, Raymond, obviously you've talked for 20 weeks now about what you think about the movie, what you think it's going to be. We sent you to France. You went to Julia DeCorno's house and tried to talk to her. She was very rude to you, and I apologize for that once again. Um, well, I now see the, where she was coming from. I was I was rapping on her windows at all hours of the day. It was, it it, was, it was very rude. Oh, and when he well. says rapping on her windows, he means he was physically rapping. He wrote a bunch of songs. <laughs> um, 
and was just rapping outside of her window. <laughs> but but I'm very curious. We we've all seen it now. What were your first impressions of this movie, Raymond? Um, my first impression of it was uh, in in the theater for its uh, its West Coast premiere at Beyond Fest. Um, I saw her first movie at Beyond Fest, and it was the greatest theatrical experience of my life. And I was going in kind of chasing that dragon. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Raw, and this was easily my most anticipated film of the year. And from the very first scene, which, as you mentioned in your recap, um, the, the car crashing, it's very, very similar to the sort of cold open of Raw. Um, it leads to the title card, similar to that film. And then we come out of that into this one of her sort of navigating this uh, this floor of this car show and all these dancers grinding on the hoods of these automobiles. And I had seen a few images that had snuck into my Twitter feed, but I had avoided previews because I just wanted to engage the film on its own terms. But in that moment, I was just like so locked and loaded. I was just ready to go. And... Uh, the movie kind of proceeds along those lines for a while, and then it just breaks in a really weird way. And even by Julia Ducournau's admission, you know, she's talked about how similar to what you were saying, Michael, this isn't necessarily a plot-driven thing. There's uh, there, there's a whole lot more going on thematically and vibe-wise that uh, I, I think she's she's just kind of interested in in chasing these impulses. Um, so I wasn't really sure after coming out of the movie how best to describe my feelings about it because it went to such strange places and and was extremely interested in just doing its own thing. But uh, Amanda, I know you saw it a couple nights uh, or you saw it a couple times in the course of like two or three days. I think I was in a similar boat. I think two or three days later, I I went into a theater to see it again. And um, I, I really, really enjoyed it more the second time. I don't think it's ever going to reach the heights of Raw for me. Um, I, I just love that film so mm. unreservedly. Uh, this one is just a little bit tougher to pin down, but I love that she was enabled and empowered to make exactly what movie she wanted to make. This seems like such a pure and clear artistic expression, and uh, I could not be more excited to see what she does after this. So those are my thoughts. Awesome. Amanda, as, as Raymond just said, you are also part of the Two Time to Tong Club. Okay. What, what, what are your However, first impressions? I saw it a second time because I had to write a video about it for, for Wisecrack. Check it out. Coming out in like a week or something. Yeah, soonish. But by, by the time um, you get this podcast, it should be out within well, we'll, less than a week. Yeah, we'll um, cover it on the next episode or two of, of Talking to Ten as well. <laughs> Oh, that would Good be point. so meta to do commentary on my <laughs> Yeah, video. we'll have to um, have you back. <laughs> um, the funniest thing was the second time I saw it, it was at like a 10.30 a.m. showing, and I was one of two people in the theater, and I just really wanted to like talk to that guy and just be like, what's going on for you? <laughs> um, the, 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 the usher even warned me. She was like, are you ready for this at 10.30? And I felt like such a cinephile. No, anyway, this movie, it, it's totally bonkers. I am racking my brains trying to think of a movie as strange as this. Like, not even like Holy Motors, I feel like, could like compare. It's just, it's so... It's so its own thing. I mean, I read one of her interviews. She's like, I completely broke the three-act structure. And like Raymond said, like she abandoned. I, I feel like she kept pretty faithful to it in Raw. 
And I feel like in this one, she just sort of was like, fuck that. Um, I'm going to do exactly what I did with Raw, and I'm not going to follow structural convention, which I always appreciate, but um, it it very visceral. I had to close my ears, close my eyes multiple times on both viewings. I'm squeamish. Um, but I... I... I found I found like the protagonist so weird and yet compelling and there were just like all these very strange nuances Mm -hmm. like every time she killed somebody she like almost hugged them as they died it was just it's it's like there was just a lot of dichotomies that I feel Mm -hmm. like you don't see in most like because I mean yeah frankly put like the protagonist is like a stone cold killer who does not appear to experience any remorse for her actions and yet it's like so much more nuanced than that um I think I think it definitely like wins like the most interesting film I've seen in a very long time nice um that's great. I'll quickly give my first impressions as well. Um, I do think that after all this time of waiting to see it, I think that I saw it during Raymond's second viewing. Didn't we determine we were in the same theater? We Yeah, we kind of triangulated this during our uh, previous conversation. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not. Um, yeah, I don't think like it was. was. <laughs> I think it was off air. Occasionally, we do not record our conversations. I don't like when we do that. But yeah, I uh, saw this movie because... I had heard both heard a lot about it um, and and, you know, when it won the Palm Door, that's obviously a big deal. Um, I'm also currently trying to make myself someone who can experience gnarly or spooky things. It's obviously well known for anyone who has consumed any Wisecrack content that I'm kind of anti spookiness. So not even anti. It just hasn't been for me. So I made a decision like I'm going to go see this movie. So I. It was, uh, I think, uh, a couple Fridays ago. I had finished up my work at Wisecrack Industries. I took public transportation down to the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles, which is probably my favorite place to see movies in the city. I uh, got there very early. I was the first one who sat down. Um, the lovely person working there was like, kind of the same thing. She was like, "Oh my God, are you ready for this?" I hear <laughs> blah 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 about it. And I was like, "Okay," um, and I was really glad I saw it by myself because. I was definitely doing a lot of like holding my hat kind of down over my (laughs) eyes for a bit. And in my internal monologue was very much like, it's just a movie, Michael, look at the screen, look at the screen. And you know, you hear all these stories about people passing out in the aisles or blah, 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 which I think like, oh, it's probably just a bunch of French cowards. Um, I with during her first kill, I I did almost, uh, I got nauseous physically um, because of the mouth foam from the victim that made me feel like I could throw up. Um, but I, as the movie went on, it, it becomes another film. So by the end of this movie, and there's like gnarly stuff, you know, scattered throughout, but I I really did find it beautiful by the end. And, and I found, you know, the story to be something, and I know I said there's like not a real story, but the the emotional transformation or the the personal transformation of the characters, I loved. And I'm definitely someone who in general... One of my favorite genres of film is like the found family story, whether it's in TV or film. Um, I'm always very compelled by that, probably because I do not like my biological family, but I like a lot of, I guess my immediate family. I love my extended biological (laughs) family. Um, But, you know, I, 
I, I think that is an important thing and I like to see that explored. Um, and you know, I'd always, I'd rather watch a, a bad character break good than a good character break bad, which I think is kind of what, what happens to an extent in the film. Um, but like Amanda said, it was an experience like the, the credits rolled and whoever was sitting right behind me in the theater, kind of like under their breath, but kind of loud, just said, what the fuck? And, and that really spoke to me. I was like, yes, I'm feeling the same thing. And that evening I thought I didn't like it at first, or I thought, I thought it was just okay. Um, I, I read some reviews immediately, went and got beers with a friend, went to bed thinking I didn't like it. Um, woke up the next morning and it was the first thing I was thinking about. Couldn't stop thinking about this movie. And I liked it the more time I had to sit with it, such that I even went and I updated my my gut reaction letterboxed <laughs> score <laughs> because I, I wanted to be, you know, consistent with the journey. But really great film. I still have not gone back to watch Raw. I'm going to do it soon on a sunny day it's on netflix right now so i just want to make sure i can watch it and then immediately go like go on a hike and listen to mac demarco or something just to really you know have some some very non-cannibalistic vibes but um yeah a really really good film and one of those things where as someone who hates spooky stuff or gnarly stuff and horror i still found it really really interesting and important um now before we break down all the the nuance and and things in this movie. Just wanted to remind everyone, um, follow Show Me Show Me the Meaning Pod on Twitter. It's SMTM underscore pod, where there's deeper dives into discussions. Um, I think Raymond's been posting a lot of really good stuff. I'm assuming that's you. I think it is. We we do a lot of shadow account stuff at Wisecrack. On the SMTM pod account? Yeah. I'm afraid that is not me. No one knows who it is. Oh, yeah. Someone, Whoever is posting just is some doing rogue fan. Who a great job. Obviously, everyone already follows at Tatan Pod for 2069. Um, so, you know, you can find us there. But also follow SMTM underscore pod. Um, we're posting fun facts about the films, the directors. And obviously, this is weird for me to acknowledge, but there is a brewing Twitter fight with the other Wisecrack podcast, Culture Binge, um, which I've heard of. I don't know which side of the fight I'm on, but if you want to participate in the fight, get involved. And also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts and enjoy these discussions, we would really, 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 really appreciate it if you drop a rating or review. Um, it helps us grow the pod. And, you know, it's not like by growing the podcast, we're getting like raises or something. It just means we can keep doing it. We can bring on more guests. We can add some more fun stuff. And of course, if you are not a Wisecrack patron, look into it patreon.com slash wisecrack we are now offering um patreon bonuses for all of our podcast so if you want to hear more about the movies we're talking about on this side if you want to hear more from some of our our cool guests on culture binge um recently raymond and i had a great discussion on culture binge with allison herman who's uh, one of the head tv writers over at the ringer we had an extra discussion with her that's on patreon as well so check all of that out Okay, so let's let's just get into the discussion. Um, I, I have a few points I want to make sure we hit, but I'm just going to start with this. And, and I'm not saying this to be frivolous because I think it's a fun point because it's obviously one of the things that if, if people know one thing about this movie, they know that the protagonist fucks a car. Um, and I knew that it was happening. I didn't know that's what was happening when it happens in the film. So just as a reminder for anyone who saw it and, and blacked out, Alexi is taking a post-murder shower because when you murder, you want to shower afterwards. Um, and we hear this banging on the wall. And I think if you don't know what's coming, you might think like, oh, it's the police who know that she has killed someone. But instead, she opens the door. We see what I would describe 
as like a pimped out Cadillac or something. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was like a weirdly sexy car. It was like it's the like unexpected guy at the bar car. It was a hot yeah. car, folks. It is. It's <laughs> like if anyone watched, um, was it Pimp My Ride with Exhibit in the early 2000s on MTV? <laughs> it's the sort of car Exhibit would have been very proud of. But the car is pounding on the door and it shines its lights at her. And it almost indicates like the vibe I got was, hey, you were you were dancing all over me earlier. Now daddy needs to get his. It was kind of the vibe I got. She then, what I really liked was how consensual it was with the car. Mm-hmm. Love oh, the enthusiastic she, like, consent. Yeah, so she gets in the back of this car. She straps into the seatbelts and they have sex. I, I want to hear what, what y'all thought kind of about that scene and then what, what, what is going on there? Why is this the thing everyone's talking about? What are they trying to say right there? I, I just think it's a good entryway into the film. I feel like we had a conversation about this and like the first thing was, I was like, it's so weird that she fucks a car and Burns, you were like, I feel like that was the least interesting thing about the film. And as soon as you said that, it was like weirdly enlightening, not weirdly enlightening, you're always enlightening, but it was like particularly, I mean, like sometimes, (laughs) Um, but it was like particularly, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like that. I almost feel like if the French, director whose name I will never be able to pronounce right it's like she like incepted her 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 film into like the overall consciousness through that one vehicle of like the one kind of salacious element and then like immediately left it behind and it was like like you were so right it's so not the point of the film like it's it's fun it makes for a good headline on like IndieWire, but it's like not the point. Like this is not a sexy film, you know? So I feel like I feel like you were completely right when you were like focusing on the, that aspect misses the real point of the film. What do you think, Raymond? Uh, I think that, that, that that's an interesting perspective, but I I would actually argue that there's much more to it than just this kind of like, chaos moment that sort of kicks things off. Um, you know, I read this as sort of an environmental allegory and Mm -hmm. a lot of the early stuff for me is just like sort of bathing in this notion of like how we fetishize automobiles and how we blend sexuality with them already, Mm -hmm. or we project notions of masculinity onto cars and things like that. And just the idea that like, taking that to its most logical extreme there are episodes of like what's that tlc show my strange addiction where people are uh, getting getting quite handsy with their cars um you know it it, it's that that was sort of in my mind watching it and also uh i'm not sure if you're aware of this michael if uh since you haven't seen raw but uh julia de Cornau has uh a tendency to use like the same character names throughout her Uh work i've heard this yeah to sort of establish thematic through lines uh, it, it, between her movies. And uh, for example, Garance Marlier, uh, who uh, is the star of Raw, uh, her name is Justine in that film. Her name is Justine in this film. She did a short film with Julia Decornau in which she plays a younger version of Justine who goes through puberty in the course of that short. And that character always has this sort of, not necessarily naive but she has a blinkered approach to life where she's always learning as she goes and and a lot of the time 
her character is a victim to like the whims of nature, whether it's uh, puberty or emerging womanhood in, in junior and raw respectively, or in this, this weird force of nature that is Alexia, who shares a name with uh, Ella Rumpf's character in Raw, who, similar to this movie, is just like almost a, a pure expression of id. She's like so hedonistic, and she's just like when when her sister catches up with her in Raw, the the discoveries that she makes about her as her older sister, as someone that she used to like look up to and and not necessarily idolize, but at least emulate. Um, the way that she has changed and the way that she has embraced it becomes very, very scary to Justine. And I just, I, I like kind of reading it as a, a similar outgrowth of, uh, of those type of character dynamics that Alexia is, it's not just that she fucks a car, it's that she represents this, this hedonistic synthesis between man and machine. Um, and, and that, you know, in my personal estimation, she is sort of like not necessarily the the midwife of the apocalypse but as as the director says she's she's bringing like a new mutant or mutated or a more harsh sort of life form into earth that is better equipped for the world that we've created yeah i um, want to jump on something you said but, just while sorry. we're still there is on sorry for monologuing <laughs> no no it's totally good um that's what we do on on the Tatan cast but i you mentioned Alexia being the synthesis, right, of, of of human and machine. And I think in a sense, early in the film, I kind of viewed it as this dialectical opposition between flesh and and mm -hmm. sort of dead matter. And I think it, by the end of the film, what the scene that really stood out to me was after the car accident and the surgery, you know, Alexia doesn't embrace mom or dad. She embraces the very car that mm -hmm. she cracked her head open in. And I think then when we flash forward, it's kind of like you think about the the way in which she treats the humans that she kills early on. Um, and I think, too, there's there's something interesting where the first kill, it's like, OK, this guy was like kind of being harassy, whatever, fuck it. But then some later kills, it's like, oh, they didn't do anything. You're just killing to kill now. Um, but I think... You know, Amanda made this point that she kind of holds them for a second, almost in this way that's like, ah, oh, you poor bastard. But it does remind me of the way in which, you know, if I have a toaster and the toaster breaks, I throw it in the trash and I don't think about it again because it's 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 dead material. And to me, there almost seemed like this opposition where the Alexia character identified more with the toaster than with mm -hmm. the, the human being early on. Um, and that it's I feel like throughout the film you know, we do have this transition from matter to human. And then obviously I think that the the car baby might represent something of a of a new humanity, a, a synthesis between those things. But I, I don't know. I guess when I looked at the car thing early on, it was just sort of like, well, of course she can make love to the car because because for her, just material is where it's at, not flesh. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's all super valid, and obviously the the whole metal plate in her head connects yeah, her course. to the immaterial, totally. But I feel like in a, I mean, and even just like mathematically, so little of the film was spent with like that aspect of her. So much of the film was spent with like the consequences. Yeah. Of behaving the way that she did 
and so I feel like the salacious coverage is all about the first like 40 minutes and to me what's like super interesting is like and we talk about this some in the video that's coming out like by the time you hear this yay um but like the idea of like I mean like Burns was talking about like found family chosen family like the 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 idea that like I mean, also, like, there's obviously a lot of body horror, but I feel like usually body horror is, like, to symbolize, like, that a character is actually horrific, whereas in this film, it's weirdly, like, the body horror of, like, her swelling body, her, like, the motor fluid coming out of her body, the, the, um, Vincent's, like, steroid injections, like, the more grotesque they become, the more human they become, and the more like human they're able to find each other and that's just so backwards from what body horror usually is and that to me is like what's super fascinating about the film sure there there is this sort of like uh, i don't necessarily want to say organic but there's a willing fusion with the material that like Mm -hmm. even even with regards to the people whom she kills and there is a slight implication i'm curious amanda uh, what your thoughts were on this uh, on a second viewing. I don't know if you caught it on a first viewing, Michael, but when the TV is on in the background of an early scene, they talk about yeah. some other serial killings that have happened in the area. So I don't, there's. that. Oh. That's how I read that. I read I that as like, that was she, her. she'd been about that life. Yeah, I had kind yeah, of assumed. Doing it a while. Yeah. And, the, and the dad knew, the dad looked at her. Like there was yeah. a very yeah. clear shot where the dad looks at her. He knows she's a serial killer. Also, Am I crazy, or did she? She literally set her house on fire. She burned her pants. Her, mm-hmm. And we just never deal with it again. <laughs> and oh, I also yeah. was thinking, and then it's like so fascinating that she then goes to a firefighter. Well, yeah, that's part of I think the environmental message with it as well. That like not only is this something about a woman who kind of embodies this force of nature, it's this guy who is you know, quite literally fighting against time with his, his aging body Mm. trying to, trying to undo that sort of damage, the damage that, you know, it's like natural environmental destruction, but it's symbolized by the fire that she starts with her parents Mm. in it. And not only that, but what I was going to say is just the sort of like willing fusion of man with machine that throughout the film, she, she kills with metal or she's, with Justine, she's trying to tear the the metal nipple rings out of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this notion that I get, like on a second viewing at least, that one of the things that humanizes uh, her father figure, uh, I can't remember his name, but uh, Vincent, uh, Vincent Vincent Landon's yeah, Vincent. character. Um, that's one of the, the movies Vincent as well. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe that's what threw me for a loop. But one of the things that uh, I, I think kind of helps her extend a sort of empathy or grace towards him is that he's already doing that. He's putting the needles in his body already. Like she, you know, the way that she is kind of like revisiting her trauma on all these people in a way makes me feel like she's trying to find others like her that are, that are like similarly hardened for the future. And ultimately she just, She's the one who has to bring that thing to bear. But uh, it's an interesting parallel though with Vincent, like by putting steroids in his body. I think we like think of steroids as this artificial thing, but in a sense, it's trying to perpetuate life. 
Like right. what is what does a steroid do other than try to increase the production of, you know, certain cells and proteins within the body? Or at so least perpetuate youth and, and vigor. Yeah. Exactly. Like like he's he's clinging like he she even asks him at one point, like, why do you do like like do you do this because you're weak or something? And he's like, No, I do it because I'm old. Like it, he's very much about like youth. Um sorry, you were saying something, Burns. Well, no, I just think like in talking about Vincent, there's that. And I do think for me, a pivotal point of the film is when Alexia is first with Vincent, this is like day one or two. And she like they have their little like dance that turns into a fight. And then she does the thing where she pulls, you know, her her steel hairpin out the thing that she's mm-hmm. used to to kill the others. And he just looks at her like, oh, really, you asshole? This is what you got? And just smacks it out of her hand with zero effort mm-hmm. and kind of like laughs at her. And it's so interesting that the first 15 minutes of this film this person is using that tool to terrorize individuals to have whatever sort of body count and into vincent it's like oh he's like you think this is scary for me i stick that in my glute every day yeah yeah the the thing that really like i i still am not getting about the film is like when the way she kills that uh, the the young woman justine yeah like that it's still not like clicking for me is it that she's like yeah i yeah i don't know i'm curious if you guys have thoughts the on only it. thing i thought there was because there's the moment where she's messing around with justine and then she does the which loki was also very hard to watch the like just aggressive biting of the nipple ring um yeah as someone that has 19 rings in each of my nipples that just really <laughs> affected me Kind of like Andrew Cuomo type over here. That was the thing, right? Where Andrew Cuomo had like nipple rings. Yeah, yeah. that's a theory. Very strange nipples. There are multiple New York Magazine articles about them, and they are all a trip. Oh, and also, um, do look up Cuomo Cast on iTunes, Spotify, whatever. We're starting a new podcast on Cuomo, so we'll be talking (laughs) about that as well. Um, but no, because there's right where Justine kind of says dismissively, first time with a girl or something like that, and it felt Mm -hmm. a little bit like that was. There was that that happened, and then they run back into the house, and it's the first time that oil comes out of her vagina. And it felt like those two things led to, I don't know, like, it almost felt like a moment of vulnerability on Alexia, the mixed vulnerability of, you know, if any if anyone was ever being intimate or you're fooling around with someone and they, like, make fun of you or laugh at you, it feels like shit. And then combined with feeling out of control of her body when the oil starts leaking – it felt to me like it created a moment of vulnerability that led to that kill, or am I overthinking it and she's just out here killing? I, I think it's tempting to project that sort of like emotional read onto someone who I, I think kind of by design is supposed to be sort of a blank slate early yeah. on. You know, I I generally think that she's kind of just compelled to kill in a way. Um, yeah. But I also right. I also think there are aspects of her relationship with Justine, like like I was referring before, um, I, I think she she recognizes in Justine a little like she also has some metal in her, whether, you know, it may be cosmetic, whereas uh, Alexia's is, you know, uh, uh, medical. Um, but there there is sort of a kindred relationship there. And when she when she recognizes that that is is just cosmetic or just surface level. Maybe it feels like a betrayal to her in some way. But like I said, that it's very easy to project a lot of stuff when I, I think intentionally the artists are giving you so little in those moments. Right, like Anton Sugar. I can never say his last name. No, you said it right. I think you got it. Oh, yeah, I did. Sugar. Okay, great. Anton, like, if you're, you're listening, you're we're, like, we're big fans. <laughs> I, no I no really disrespect. I apologize. Man. Please 
leave the cattle prod at home when you come to angrily to my door. Um, no, like, yeah, like, like how much are we supposed to think that she has normal human emotions at that point in the film? Um, not a lot, right? Probably not. I think if she is like the progenitor of the next step in human evolution, at least as presented by this film, it is one of those things where it's like, she doesn't she doesn't necessarily connect with these folks because she's she has transcended this sort of uh not necessarily this earthly coil but she's she's transcended this humanity and it's not until she finds people who are on a similar wavelength that that she's able to soften a little bit well well, let me ask you guys this where do you think the point of the film is or how does it happen Where, where do you see alexia's and vincent's journeys coming together what is the inflection point in which we do start to see a change in both of those characters. I mean, well, I think, I think like one thing we haven't talked about is like just gender in the film and how Alexia really only becomes a person once she starts pretending to be a boy and how the moments where Vincent seems most human are when he's letting go of his need for like, classic masculine attributes like power you know at one point he like he tells the other firemen he's like i'm god so alexia yeah. Jesus. and you're like that's not really a way to make friends so <laughs> um so i feel and and the steroids obviously classic masculinity clinging to his virulent youth kind of a thing but so also I, clinging to his past and his love for his son and and not wanting to let that aspect of his life go um, sure, sure, but, sure. So, sorry, sorry for cutting you off. But I guess all I'm saying is that I feel like beyond like the the machine level, I think she's also saying that like boxing yourself into like classic femininity or masculinity is like dehumanizing sure. and makes it impossible to relate to other people in like a full meaningful way. Yeah. And I do like that point you made, Amanda, where like queerness becomes this middle ground for both of them where Alexia starts to find herself as she's performing as the son. And then Vincent seems to find himself or express himself when he's like, you know, dancing to future islands with his firemen buddies. <laughs> um, or like cradling the baby at the end. Like of course. A, yeah. Like a mom. And- yeah. I, I also think it's important to note that, like, that there's a similar kind of uh, symbolism happening in Raw with the Adrian character in that as well, played by, uh, I'm sure I'll mispronounce this, but Rabba Naid Ufala. Um, uh, Adrian in that, which is the name that she takes on when she's uh, impersonating the fireman's son, is mm-hmm. similarly kind of like uh, a, a deliberate he's he's a gay man but he's he doesn't uh really prescribe to any one sort of stereotype or cliche and even so much as uh late in the film has a bit of a romantic tryst with his female roommate justine um and there's there is a, a weird way that like that that character she's always playing with that name of uh, mm-hmm. or excuse me that name she's always playing with these character dynamics of people who aren't easily boxed in by uh, societal expectations or as you were saying amanda gender norms yeah and any of the interviews with du Cornell as well she seems to get at that like that things like love and gender are these boxed in categories that she's not interested in like she's not interested yeah. in the framing of those things but interesting interested in humanity itself and love itself 
and and thinking of those things in more dynamic terms. And she also said that she she auditioned uh, uh, male, female, and non-binary actors for Alexia slash Adrian. That she she was really not concerned at all with yeah. the, the the gender construct when she was casting this. So much of uh, so much as how that character would be presented at certain times throughout the story. But uh, Amanda, what were you going to say? Oh, in a different interview I read, she kind of talked about the scene where Adrian dances for the fireman. She described it as like a queer paradise or something. And that was really interesting to me because it was so, like she was dancing in many of the same ways that like she was dancing at the beginning of the film, like for ogling heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. But it was, it just read so differently when it was like, her choice and it was very I may have lost the thread um but you know what I mean it was just no, it, I know what you're it, saying. it was saying that like I feel like it was like it was it was very much saying that like there's nothing wrong with like performing mm-hmm. like, hypersexuality as long as like you're in ownership of it and it yeah to do it and it also says a lot about uh, the other firefighters as well because that's the exact type of thing or they may be the exact type of person that in the scene from earlier in the film when she's performing on the hood of the car um they might be the guys who are totally into that but because of their own notions or expectations of gender or the people with whom they surround themselves in that moment it's just this really wicked play on their own sexuality where they the, the movie makes a point of showing these guys as having these sort of homo-socialized relationships mm-hmm. where they, they don't have any compunction or shame about, like, dancing with each other and, and just, like, going crazy and getting shirtless and partying down. And then as soon as someone gets up on top of a fire truck and makes it more overtly sexualized or explicitly sexualized, mm-hmm. that's where, like, all of their you know, their their guard just sort of falls or rather maybe they start putting it back up. They have to start reassuming that masculine yeah. shell. Yeah, I mean, that's classic, like, unconscious homoeroticism amongst masculine-presenting dudes the second it's called out and it's no longer just an unconscious thing. Everyone everyone scatters. Um, as, as we got to sort of, you know, eventually get the car towards the garage, to be clear, I'm in the back of the car naked in this, in this scenario. Um, wouldn't have it any other way, Mike. Yeah, of course. But uh, before we wrap, I do want to talk about this. Um, so at the end of the film, mm-hmm. we, have a, we have a birth. And we love, we love birth scenes. We love babies. We love life. Um, this one's a little different. And it's a very intense um, last scene where, where Alexia and Vincent seem to admit like they, they do love each other. And Alexia seems so confused by what it means to love that at one point she starts, you know, kissing Vincent. And I think... When I was in the theater, I was like, oh, no, if she fucks her kind of dad, I, I got to be out of this. But but it wasn't. And to me, it seems like this overwhelming sense of like, how what how do I love? How do I express this? I don't know what it's like. Mm-hmm. We go right into the birth from there. Um, you know, huge spoiler alert here. For some reason, you've gotten this far in. Um, I'm going to give you a second. 20 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, a baby comes out of her. She dies. Vincent hugs the baby. The baby has a car spine. But it looks it looks like a it's babyish, but we see like a metal spine. There's oil and also over a plate it, but, in it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So so what do we make about that? What how what were our reads on? Maybe our reads on the end of the film, or just you know what we what we were left with, because um, the film does end on that note. I feel like the moment of like kind of recognition between them when she finally says her real name, um, was 
was very beautiful. I feel like the fact that she tried to kiss him first speaks to like what we've kind of talked about the, uh, well, we talk about a lot of the video, which is like the idea of classic relationship paradigms of mother, father, daughter, son, blah, 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 like uh, romantic partner, friend, blah, like, like, like they're not that relevant to the director. She's like very just much about like love and connection. And I feel like that was the confusion that, um, that Alexia like kind of demonstrated when she tried to kiss him. Um, with the birth of the son, I mean, I don't know. I think, I, I feel like it was maybe coded as a boy, who cares, whatever. The birth of the baby um, with like the car spine, it's definitely the thing that's been most confusing to me about the film. Um, and, I think it like to me it's an extension of like the grotesque the grotesqueness and yet lovability of like the human body. Um that like 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 this baby can be so visibly grotesque and Vincent can instantly accept him and love him. Um but yeah, I'm curious because I feel like Raymond has a whole other allegory going on <laughs> that I had not thought about at all. Yeah, do it, Raymond. Well, I had alluded to this before, but I, I read it uh, largely, not exclusively, but largely as an environmental allegory. And uh, seeing the baby delivered at the end that has has been transformed or mutated. I think even Julia Decronau said in um, uh, an interview that she thinks the child is more suited to the the coming world be specifically because of its monstrousness and in a way that makes it sort of a hopeful ending that you know uh, there there is a way for us to adapt and and live on whether it is in the face of uh you know environmental crises or in the face of individual injustice um because we can't ignore Amanda, like you said, the the baby to you was maybe coded male, but I, I don't think it really matters. You know, it's it it's one of those things where so much of the film is about embracing androgyny. And uh, it, it, it's really like one of the only times that Alexia really uses her her male disguise is to uh, not only hide in plain sight, but when she's on the bus and there's a woman being harassed by a group of men, mm. she she is able to hide in plain sight there because she's coded as a man. Um, and I, I just like, I kind of like this notion, this optimism of uh, uh, a, a new sort of generation of folks who aren't defined by any one demographic or personal characteristic uh, and who are ready to like fuse together and, and, try and make the world maybe a better place or at least uh, yeah. somewhere that's uh, a little bit more uh, inhabitable or hospitable to others. Uh, but yeah. that was my, my some, the long and the short of it for me. Michael, what do you think? Well, just, I know Amanda has something to say, so I'll just really quickly say the one thing it did make me think of is there is a kind of movement in recent and by recently last 20 years of uh, full like continental philosophy and theory stuff of this notion of kind of like the post human um, and how we think about humanity in terms of uh, like a symbiosis with various technological things. So some people will say, you know, we are we are already post-human because um, part of my consciousness is connected to the tiny device in my pocket that mediates knowledge, communication, information, all this other stuff. But then of course, 
um, whether it's our ability to create prosthetic limbs or our ability to, you know, uh, literally use technology to shape the brain or how someone sees or hears, whatever it might be, there is a sense that the future of humanity is one in which a type of inor inorganic life is going to join with organic life and that we need to redefine or rethink our categories of, of traditional humanity and what that means socially, politically, sexually, all those sorts of things. So, you know, there is the, uh, grad school brain started to light off a little bit at the end right there because I think that is that is the fantasy of a certain type of of theorist and not to to you know shove that into the text but on a side related note I was really psyched when I found out that uh, de Corneau studied philosophy at the Sorbonne for college um thought that was very cool um studied film and philosophy there and you know for those that don't know that's uh it's a very good unit if you're in France uh it's to like study fine. yeah to study philosophy at the Sorbonne means you are passing a very intensive entrance exam um and you are studying with some very big shit philosophers so thought that was also uh, a cool fact to know that that this filmmaker is someone who who did study philosophy and, and a lot of the interviews referenced existentialism and, and other sort of European philosophical movements as if it was second nature to her. So, um, but yeah, Amanda, you were about to say something great. I interrupted it. Oh my gosh, no, I don't think I was. I think, uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think I think I lost the thread. Don't even worry. Okay, well, we we should get wrapping up. That so, was really interesting anyway. yeah. So, how about any any final thoughts on this one before we wrap up? Anything that is overwhelming? And once again, we we got renewed. Um, by Jeff Bezos to do a hundred more episodes of this podcast. So we don't have to get it all out now, but if there's anything that you feel like you haven't gotten to say about Tatan that you want to say now. Um, what do you got, Amanda? Um, eh, corny. <laughs> I just feel like it's the movie's very, corny. No, I just feel I think like she very, is. I think what I'm saying is corny it's very invigorating to like see people like this director like creating like female protagonists that I haven't seen before sure. with like more nuance than I've ever seen before and like I don't know like it's easy I think like as like a like it, it can be easy to get like discouraged about the film industry and like moments like this at 10:30 when I'm watching someone get stabbed in the ear with a hairpin and film at the mouth. I'm like, wow, there's still new shit to be made. <laughs> yeah, um, I was gonna say uh, something kind of in the same ballpark as that, which is that, you know, we've we've been talking to Tan so much for the past 20 weeks. I, I really just want to give it up to Julie Decronau. I think she's a great filmmaker. She's clearly a great creative mind. Um, I'm, uh, I mentioned before, I'm so excited to see what she does next, but also uh, she really appreciates uh, the lineage in which uh, her films are being situated. You know, she she's an acolyte of David Cronenberg and uh, just for a, a spooky October wreck, everyone, if you if you haven't seen uh, David Cronenberg's Crash, it's a phenomenal double feature with this movie. Uh, there's some clear influences, uh, not only from that, but uh, across uh, his his uh, filmmaking spectrum. And uh, I yeah. definitely recommend it. Okay, I the fly in our video. Actually. Love the fly. Yes. Yeah, 
Um, Another great am, body horror. Yeah, I'm getting a light from our producer in the booth that we do have to wrap things up because I guess uh, Kelly Rowland from uh, Destiny's Child is coming to the studio next to record her podcast on on the uh, early work of I Wes Anderson. Yeah, you are a guest <laughs> on that. They're talking Battle Rocket today. Um, real quick, then you have don't even think about this. What what's the hottest car, Raymond? The car that you find the hottest? The hottest car. If you um, had to, if you had to think a car was sexy, know. beautiful, hot. Hey. The, the, the Model T. Model T. He likes some classic, sturdy. That's yeah. great, Amanda. What's what's just the Experience. sexiest car you, you can think of? I'm really wholesome. I really like a Bug Beetle. <laughs> oh, I love it. Bug Beetle, kind of free-flowing, hippie vibes, whatever. I'm going to say, and there's a GW lot of associations here. GW Bus from Michael yeah. the Deadhead. I want to say the GW Bus, but I'm going to – VW Bus. I'm going to go Jeep Wrangler, and this is really weird, but I think I, I think it's because of Lorelai Gilmore. Because I think of Lorelai in a Wrangler, and she's she's great. I don't know a Jeep Wrangler to be fun, outdoorsy. We're in nature. No one no one's around. There's no judgment. We can do what we want. Um, Quick piece dialogue. Like, <laughs> yeah, let's wrap it up. You know, my my parents are coming in and making it weird at the end and judging me. Um, my daughter's awkwardly involved in a way she shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> But and as, as everyone knows, oh, once again, on a normal show me the meaning, we would have a mailbag. But on uh, the Tom oh, what, what about show me the what about show me the meaning? Show me the meaning. It's, it's another. Po- it's an adjacent podcast in the same yeah. family. No mailbag right now. Um, show me the meaning, which is a podcast. Follow the 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 Twitter account. Um, we'll be back next week with an episode on Squid Game, which isn't a movie. Yeah. It's a series on Netflix. Um, and here's just a fun thing for everyone out there. Wisecrack is putting out videos on Titan and Squid Game. Um, in the coming weeks. So please check both of those out. Let us know what you think. Uh, for Squid Game, we'll be live streaming it at the normal time, 6 p.m. PST on the Wisecrack YouTube channel. Before we go, um, Amanda, where can people find you on the social media? Oh my God, I'm so bad at social media. Watch you don't have videos. to say this if you don't want. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I have a Twitter. I'm just Amanda Shirker, boring. And then watch watch our videos. I write and edit them and it turns my hair gray. So <laughs> you might as well enjoy them. Yes, as everyone can see on video, just so much gray hair. Um, Raymond, how about you? Where can where can folks find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. And you can find Raw on Netflix. Watch it, watch it, watch it. Awesome. Um, Michael O'Burns on Twitter. And I think on Letterboxd, I'm at Breezy42069. Um, I think that's what I am on there. So make what you will of that. Um, but I'll let Raymond do our traditional sign off that you've all come to know and love after 20 episodes. So thanks for sticking around. Raymond, she's all yours. And as always, folks, we've reached Titan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good times. Great oldies, everyone. <laughs>